hppodcraft.com. Mauled, compressed, twisted, and ruptured as they were, their chief common injury was total decapitation. From each one, the tentacled starfish head had been removed, and as we drew near, we saw that the manner of removal looked more like some hellish tearing or suction than like any ordinary form of cleavage. Their noisome, dark green ichor formed a large spreading pool, but its stench was half overshadowed by that newer and stranger stench, here more pungent than any other point along our route. Only when we had come very close to the sprawling obstructions could we trace that second unexplainable fetter to any immediate source. And the instant we did so, Danforth, remembering certain very vivid sculptures of the Old One's history in the Permian Age 150 million years ago, gave vent to a nerve-tortured cry which echoed hysterically through that vaulted and archaic passage. That was a paragraph from chapter 11 of At the Mountains of Madness, a story by H.P. Lovecraft. And we are here at the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Ian Colbod. And we're here at hppodcraft.com. Yes, and this week we are again sponsored by the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, an alternative universe since 1984 at CthulhuLives.org. If you haven't heard it, you should. They have a dark adventure radio theater adaptation of this story that's a really fun listen. You can pick that up at their site. And uh, also now they're distributing this adaptation from Germany of A Color Out of Space called Defarb. Defarb, yes. And it's a full-length feature film. Check it out. We're going to be wrapping up at the Mountains of Madness in this episode. So let me just say we have had along for this uh, journey with us Reber Clark, our reader Joe Freya, uh, our tech guy Mike Mann is always helping us out, and our intern Brooke Burgess has written out some notes for this. And we want to thank them all for helping us out on this very extensive seven-part coverage of the story. Absolutely. What was going on in that opening uh, quote we heard there? Well, uh, our two heroes, Dyer and Danforth, have ventured into this ancient city in Antarctica, and they have stumbled upon the bodies of these elder things, old ones, who were once alive, frozen in ice, and then recently brought out from the ice and thawed out, and they have gone back into the city, and they themselves were killed decapitated and by what we we don't know but we can suspect because in our last story there were hieroglyphics of the shoggoths and when there was the war with the shoggoths they lobbed off the heads of the elder things yeah it was some really unsettling art that depicted what they did to the elder things when they got a hold of them during that uh, war of resubjugation and what they're looking at right now looks very similar to, to those drawings. Yeah, they ate their heads off. They kind of ate like their Charles heads Dexter off. Ward. <laughs> right. You know, at first they think maybe that these guys are victims of a penguin attack. But, <laughs> but no, they recognize from the art what had happened to them. Exactly. They studied the bodies of him. And this brings us to a really interesting section of the story. It's here that Dyer expresses a kind of empathy with these elder things. Right. And now... When Danforth and I saw the freshly glistening and reflectively iridescent black slime which clung thickly to those headless bodies and stank obscenely with that new, unknown odor whose cause only a diseased fancy could envisage. 
clung to those bodies and sparkled less voluminously on a smooth part of the accursedly re-sculptured wall in a series of grouped dots. We understood the quality of cosmic fear to its uttermost depths. It was not fear of those four missing others, for all too well did we suspect that they would do no harm again. Poor devils! After all, they were not evil things of their kind. They were the men of another age and another order of being. Nature had played a hellish jest on them, as it will on any others that human madness, callousness, or cruelty may hereafter drag up in that hideously dead or sleeping polar waste. And this was their tragic homecoming. They had not been even savages, for what indeed had they done? That awful awakening in the cold of an unknown epoch. Perhaps an attack by the furry, frantically barking quadrupeds and a day's defense against them and the equally frantic white simians with the queer wrappings and paraphernalia. Poor Lake! Poor Gedney! And poor old ones! Scientists to the last! What have they done that we would not have done in their place? God, what intelligence and persistence, what a facing of the incredible, just as those carven kidsmen and forebears had faced things only a little less incredible. Radiance, vegetables, monstrosities, star spawn, whatever they had been, they were men. is the whole book this this paragraph is pretty much what the book is about in my mind and pretty much a, a stepping stone for lovecraft and lovecraftian horror from going from mythologizing to science fiction because he, he makes this assessment of them and the revelation is essentially the thing that we're afraid of might be that it's because it's a bit like us you know so they, they get down there they see these things and he makes this kind of connection with it and, uh, and I really felt like at this point, this is where it kind of became rational rather than irrational. And so you go from the irrational, which is mythology and mythologizing, to the rational, which is essentially the science of, well, fictional fact in terms of this fiction, mm-hmm. of um, seeing the world in a very different and clear perspective. Everything has, a, has an explanation for where it came from. And, and this is where it kind of grows up. Now, I struggle with this passage a little bit, to tell you the truth, because... I had read folks saying it really shows a sort of a maturity in Lovecraft that he can yeah. look at his monsters just as not a scary force of the unknown and from the outside and really see, well, I understand their motives and they're not, they're not savages. They're not terrible things. No. And that that kind of shows some maturity on Lovecraft's part, but I don't think so. He's identifying with the slave owners <laughs> and the... I'm yeah. sorry, but he is. Like, yeah. they're not, yeah. to me, they're assholes. Yeah. They created these, these beasts of burden that they subjugated and brutalized. And when he talks about, we had talked about on another show about how, you know, Lovecraft had this kind of view that we should be socialistic so that people don't have to work and they can appreciate beauty and that kind of thing. Right. But you have to understand, he's talking about a civilization, and it was the same in the mound, in which all that work is done by inferior things. Right. The reason that these people have the time to contemplate art and make these great sculptures is because they own slaves, man. And I just, I really identify with the Shagas in here. The way he talks about their art and the way that they, they're trying to be upper echelon, upper class 
you know, elder things and they're failing and there's something disgusting in that yeah. is so like snobby and crappy. I don't know. I'm sorry. You're talking about Lovecraft's racism specifically. I am. And I think when people say that this is a, this is a, it shows you that maybe his attitudes about that stuff was changing. I'm saying, I don't think it does. Right. I think it does because I think essentially all the things you're talking about, where you're talking about uh, people doing stuff for other people, we still have that. We still have that. We have sure. children on the streets of India that essentially make our clothes. We do still, much as we don't like to think about it, we do mm. still have slave economy going on. So that really hasn't changed. And in that <laughs> aspect of it, point. when people are saying this is racism maturing, I've always seen this as a... I found it, when he said it, it was a profoundly honest thing for somebody who's supposed to have been a racist. Well, he was a racist, but it's like a, to acknowledge that that's essentially their ignorance and their fear. That this is, you know, isn't this crazy? You know, we're scared of things that we, that they, they might actually be like us. And the things that he's talking about couldn't be anything like us in terms of what they look like. And yet he's associating them as human. I think that's quite a, a bold step. So I think people in that regard are correct because essentially that's, that's kind of what he's doing. If we're talking about slavery, it still exists now. So essentially we're no different, really. And so... Mm. It's a real kind of honest kind of assessment of his own, his own nature in a way, which he inadvertently does through his own fiction. This is a cautionary tale of a, of a culture that, that, they, that they were like, like as in they yeah. used slaves and eventually the slaves rose up and destroyed their entire civilization. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that is something else that Lovecraft is saying, that ultimately these societies aren't going to, going to survive. Because they become too decadent. Right. I mean, it could be, it could be, you could be right, Chad, that, that he is still— Oh, no, I don't think there's any right and wrong in here. I, I'm just saying that I—my first impression is exactly what Ian just said, which is he looks at what had happened, and the, these elder things killed everybody that he went on this expedition with. When they woke up in the middle of the snow, they destroyed his friends. And he's able yeah. to cross over and say, but— Looking at it from their perspective, they just woke up and what were these naked apes doing to them? And yeah. why were these dogs gnashing their teeth and coming after them? They just defended themselves. And then they tried to go home and the poor things got killed before they could get to. So I like I do think that's sophisticated to say this thing that's nothing like me and doesn't look like me and be able to go. But what's its point of view and how can I learn from that? At the same time, the reason I say struggle with it is because the ones he's identifying with are they seem to me the same as the people of the street. You know, they're these kind, gentle New England kind of evolved group of people. That's all. Do, you know what I'm saying? I'm of two minds about it. Where it, it betray- You make a valid point. Yeah. And, and I think Ian makes a, a very good point as well. I agree. There you go. Done. <laughs> <laughs> but also from a literary standpoint, I think this is sort of different from Lovecraft's stories as well, because this is really, a, this feels like a, a solid science fiction story. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because a lot of times in science fiction, there is a parallel being shown to our society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's trying to say something about our society and our culture mm. through through this other. Whereas Lovecraft doesn't usually do that. He tells scary stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there might be some science fiction elements in it. This is really a science fiction theme, I feel like, that we're oh, really getting from Lovecraft for the first time. When I was reading this stuff, it actually reminds me more of a robot story than anything. You know, the Elder Things created the Shoggoths and... Mm. And then they rebelled, which is every robot story. Mankind right. creates a robot, and the robots eventually become sentient, and they want to be human, and then that's the cause of trouble. Yeah, I think that I'm trying to remember the name of the story where essentially he comes up and he comes to the party, and you get it from the monster's POV, and he looks in the mirror. The outsider. At the outsider, and 
that, in a sense, is autobiographical. And I think when writers and actors and artists of every description, they try and find a truth. I think this is what's fundamentally the truth of this piece. Yeah. It's like this is a really honest part of the writing. And I think, it, but I also think everything else kind of hinges on this. The fact that we've, you know, when you see the city and there's, you know, we have some sort of connection to things. And I sort of think that we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. We were saying that this is all the grown-up stuff and it's a serious thing. We feel like we're going in a certain direction. And I just feel like he, whenever he does things like this, he is almost writing about himself. There's something that's slightly uh, sort of semi-autobiographical in a sort of funny way. I think it's um, De Camp who wrote that he began to adjust his views towards the end of his life, mm-hmm. short as it was. And I think that this is the point where I feel really sad that he didn't write more because I would have loved to have known where this was going. Yeah. And what was, you know, yeah. this, 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 what he hits on here, I would have loved to have seen loads more of later on. Well, there's some interesting stuff that's going to come up with, um, shadow out of time that, that yeah. it's, it really is. It does add on a lot to, to this. Yeah. We have a lot of other stories, but, the, but definitely shadow out of time is sort of a, a sequel to this in a way. Yeah. When they discover these bodies of the old ones, Danforth lets out this scream of horror and it kind of echoes around through the tunnels. Because of that, they begin to hear another sound, something that they must have upset when they were screaming. (laughs) And uh, in just hearing it coming, kind of, they start running and getting the heck out of there. And that's the great heroic flight at the end of the story. We gotta go, you know what I mean? What they hear is the piping sound. But it's it's much more distinct. It's much clearer. It's not a distant thing anymore. And it sounds like it's saying Talikali? Talikali? Is that how you guys pronounce it? I say Tekalili. Tekalili? Yeah. I say Tekalili. Well, I'll tell you that no matter how you pronounce it, there's nothing you can do to make that sound scary to me. I'm sorry. It just sounds like some little like elf dancing around. Tekalili, Tekalili. <laughs> you know, which I think makes it even more creepy to me. You know, like you're, like it sounds pleasant like like a little flutey sound like a and you look over and it's this gigantic amorphous blobbish monstrosity <laughs> and it's like no that shouldn't be coming out of that well yeah it definitely in this context it's pretty horrific and dire danforth start hauling butt and they go up that spiral ramp trying to get out into the sane outer air and light of of day and um they actually this gets a little confusing here but they can hear an elder thing? Yeah. There's another elder thing back there that's still alive and, and maybe had been off doing its own thing and it discovered the bodies right after they did. Right. And then the thing's coming up from the tunnel and the elder thing is running and they're running and they're like, I feel bad for that guy. But but I love that the elder thing had a total Friday the 13th moment. You know, he was just wandering around <laughs> with a box of cookies or something and then he goes, <gasps> what? And all of his friends are headless on the ground. <laughs> they're running and then the penguins start running because this big monstrous amorphous blob a shoggoth it's a shoggoth by the way it's a shoggoth it's coming up and the penguins start getting uh, enveloped by this as it rolls over and Danforth and Dyer just keep going they're not gonna they're not stopping the penguins are slowing this thing down you know and again they feel bad oh it would have been such a hilarious thing if they tried to save one of the penguins though like (laughs) Danforth was running up there and he had a gigantic penguin in his arms you know like all universal (laughs) oh clapping their hands going shoo 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 come on let's go (laughs) come on little buddy we're gonna make it one of them was hanging over his shoulder the other one yeah that would have been great makes you even sadder when you've seen Happy Feet (laughs) Happy Feet is an adaptation of this story (laughs) (laughs) It's a penguin story. Yeah, as I understand it. I I didn't realize that, Chad. It um... is, yeah. (laughs) H.P. Lovecraft's happy. 
Well, they, they actually, at one point, they shine their flashlights back just for a second, a split second, and they get a glimpse of what's behind them, and they don't like it. Danforth starts reciting stations from the Boston-Cambridge underground, right? He starts right. running through the different yeah. stations. And I think it's great image because the thing coming, it's like a subway car emerging from the darkness. But we were not on a station platform. We were on the track ahead as the nightmare plastic column of fetid black iridescence oozed tightly onward through its 15-foot sinus. Gathering unholy speed and driving before it a spiral, re-thickening cloud of pallid abyss vapor. It was a terrible, indescribable thing, vaster than any subway train. A shapeless condries of protoplasmic bubbles, faintly self-luminous, and with myriads of temporary eyes forming and unforming as pustules of greenish light all over the tunnel-filling front that bore down upon us, crushing the frantic penguins and slithering over the glistening floor that it and its kind had swept so evilly free of all litter. Still came that eldritch, mocking cry, Tekalili! Tekalili! And at last, we remembered that the demonic Shoggoths, given life, thought, and plastic organ patterns solely by the old ones, and having no language save that which the dot groups expressed, had likewise no voice save the imitated accents of their bygone masters. Wow, and that ends uh, that ends chapter eleven. Gets us into chapter twelve, the final chapter. I really like the connection between the noise it's making, and here you have something that makes a bit more sense, really, because it's like a train coming through, and uh, to me that's like the wheels on the track going tick 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 tick. So it's like oh, tickle yeah. lily, <laughs> Yeah, that's good. That's I, I do like that, but I, I I always thought that the sound that maybe this is it actually said there that that sound that it makes. It was mimicking the noises of the Elder Things, right? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you could even, I, I don't know if this is what happens, but it seems like the Elder Thing that's trying to get away is screaming that, and then it gets run over, and then the monster <laughs> And then squish. <laughs> it doesn't say anymore. Well, the monster, the monster starts monster making said. the noise that it was making. Because it's what they've learned to do. Right. I feel like someone's, did we talk about this before, where it's like backtalk? The other thing's going, tackle-lee-lee, tackle-lee-lee, tackle-lee. It's running away. It's all scared. Then you hear, tackle-lee-lee. <laughs> <laughs> That's so horrible. As it runs them over, rubbing oh. it in. Yeah, oh. tackle-lee-lee. <laughs> rubbing it in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tackle-lee-lee, bitch. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Dyer and Danforth basically get lucky in their run, and they kind of get onto that ramp, and they, they take a left. They zig when the shot goes zag. They run it's up. They into an alcove, can they? Yeah. And, it, and because of that providential kind of find, which is sort of accidental, they're able to escape it. They find their way out. They find their plane. They get in there, and they get the heck out. Yeah. They start flying off. They have to go through this pass, and they see over into the, the forbidden area, you know, where where the the old ones said, you know, we don't go, we don't yeah. think about, we don't do anything. And he noticed Danforth flying, his hands were shaking and he looks crazed and disturbed. He says, you know, let me pilot, let me pilot for you. And he's like, okay, fine. So he takes over and then Danforth starts, he looks kind of out to the west, he looks out to the east, and then he looks up. And then after he looks up, he flips out. All that Danforth has ever hinted is that the final horror was a mirage. 
It was not, he declares, anything connected with the cubes and caves of echoing, vaporous, wormily honeycombed mountains of madness which we crossed, but a single, fantastic, demoniac glimpse among the churning zenith clouds of what lay back of those other violet westward mountains which the old ones had shunned and feared. He has on rare occasions whispered disjointed and irresponsible things about the Black Pit, Black Pit. the Carven the Rim, Rim, the Proto-Shoggoths, the windowless solids with five dimensions, the nameless cylinder, the Elder Pharaohs, Yogg-Sothoth, the primal white jelly, the color out of space, the wings, the eyes in the darkness, the moon matter, the original, the eternal, the undying, and other bizarre conceptions. But when he is fully himself, he repudiates all this and attributes it to his curious and macabre reading of earlier years. Danforth, indeed, is known to be among the few who have ever dared to go completely through that worm-riddled copy of the Necronomicon kept under lock and key in the college library. The higher sky, as we crossed the range, was surely vaporous and disturbed enough. And although I did not see the zenith, I can well imagine that its swirls of ice dust may have taken strange forms. Imagination, knowing how vividly distant scenes can sometimes be reflected, refracted, and magnified by such layers of restless cloud, might easily have supplied the rest. And of course Danforth did not hint any of those specific horrors till after his memory had had a chance to draw on his bygone reading. He could never have seen so much in one instantaneous glance. At the time, his shrieks were confined to the repetition of a single mad word of all too obvious source. Tekalili! Tekalili! And that is the end of the story. That is the end of the story. Man, all those things that they're alluding to, what it was that Danforth actually saw when he looked over into the, that unknown region, that, that forbidden mm-hmm. zone. You know, the, the line, the Elder Pharaohs, that's one of the things he mentions. Yeah. That is from uh, the poem that H.P. Lovecraft wrote, The Fungi of Yugoth. Yeah. And Pharaohs means lighthouse. Oh. Yeah. It's not talking about Egyptian rulers. No, no. That's yeah. That's the other one of the things that I I didn't know about. But I'm trying to remember now. My head is completely wrong. There was a light on the top of the mountain. Right. On the top of the mountain in the mm-hmm. west, which is essentially supposed to be Kadath, you have a, like a light that comes on and right. almost like the eye of Sauron, sort of looking around. Yeah. There's a couple of things in there. It reminds me a little of the Haunter of the Dark. Um, reminds me. Obviously, they it outright says the color out of space. So it's it's something that really is otherworldly that totally yeah. dwarfs all of this other. This is the cool Lovecraft stuff. You know, he, he gives us all of this explanation of this ancient culture and the civilization and starts kind of explaining things. You know, Cthulhu's not really a god. He's just this alien life form and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And then he smacks you with some other... So, okay, yeah, but there's still some other stuff you, you're never going to understand. Right. We've gone on this whole journey of exploration, and beyond it, there's even more unknowable, horrible Even things. more. Like, this stuff that's blowing your mind, this is nothing. And amazingly, you don't see it. No. Because no. it's just Danforth turns back, looks, and goes crazy, and, and 
you don't really know what is there. It's just a vague suggestion of something, even worse than what he's seen already. I think he was alluding to a sequel of this. What? I got it in um, it an annotated uh, Joshi note. Mm -hmm. He wanted to leave the actuality of the glimpse very unsettled so that it might easily pass off as a hallucination. Possibly I ought to have left it vaguer still. And then again, I had an idea that the thing ought to be developed at full length. Perhaps as a sequel to the present thing, or perhaps as an expansion of that thing to full book length. What the thing was supposed to be, of course, was a region containing vestiges of some utterly primal cosmic force or process ruling out a occupying the Earth, among other planets, even before its solidification and upheaval from the sea bottom when a great Antarctic landmass arose. Yeah, essentially he wanted to follow this up with some greater explanation. Oh, well, I'm glad he didn't. And I, I love it. I, I mean, I really yeah, think I that like this that. is much cooler than actually having an explanation of what it was. You know, yeah, just... it's, it's way better not to, not to have seen it. Exactly. You just get a hint of something going wrong, but right. not the whole thing. Because I love the idea that the penguins came up because the Shoggoth came up. And I remember reading the Shoggoth bit and thought, why did that come up? Something else. <laughs> I remember thinking, something else must have forced that to come up. Something much scarier. And you get that sense at the end of the story that there's far worse things than that. Far worse things. The Shoggoth is, that's small potatoes compared to whatever is in the Forbidden region. You can take it from all this that you guys, uh, you guys like the story? Eh. I love this story. Eh. Yeah, I absolutely <laughs> love it. I absolutely love it. It's so cool. Yeah. And it's, since we've been doing this podcast, I've reread the story more times than I can uh, really count. And every time I reread it, I get a little something more out of it. And it's just, it's so rich and neat and so exciting. And it just fuels imagination. And it's one of those stories. I love the campfire sort of way that he hooks you in with a little bit of a reveal of what's going to happen. Then he kind of tells you the normal mundane stuff, which is things like the travelogue at the front end of the book where they're just going for hikes up the sides of mountains. And then, but then there's this really important stuff he gets to later on. And I quite like the way that the story fishes you along into what unravels and becomes just worse and worse and horrific. And it's great. I'll say this, there's some great stuff in the story. I, I do like it. It's tough to get through. I'd probably rather read Ian's adaptation so I didn't have to, <laughs> so I didn't have to get bogged down in all of the detail. Yeah, aside from that, I think it's good. I think there's a barrier here for most people to read it. Again, this is not something I would recommend to a first-time Lovecraft reader. No, no, start with a shorter story Yeah, absolutely. and then get to this massive section which is the, the, essentially the travelogue you have to have patience to work your way through that and understand that there's there's you know it's cool the way that it's going to get revealed right yeah. and he does pay off it does yeah, absolutely. yeah big time absolutely. Uh, ian i have to i don't know if i said it to you or i've said it before but i i absolutely love your adaptation of at the mountains of madness i, I love it i love it and uh we've loved having you on the show and i'm uh, gonna be sad to draw this to a close, although it has been quite a long journey right. and, and uh, we've got other things to move on to. Let me just say this. We did, uh, early in the program, announce that we had the ransom and that ransom was met. Yes. After this show, we're going to post those readings. It's, again, The Cats of Ultra by Heather Klinke and uh, Cool Air featuring Rachel Lackey. Yep. Those are going to be up next. We're going to take a short break after this and then get into our final stretch of the show, to tell you the truth. We've got about 20, 25 stories left, I think. Yeah. Not, not many. Not many left. I think the Shadow Over Innsmouth. Shadow Over Innsmouth is our next story, absolutely. Which I love. I love and it. I'm really excited. Yeah. To that. We're going to have some good guests on that. It's going to be a cool series of shows. 
So we'll have the readings first, and then we'll be on to that. I want to thank Joe Freya again for doing all the marvelous readings on these shows. Right. And uh, Reber Clark for providing music. I also want to thank Mike Mann for doing all of our technical magic and Brooke Burgess for doing our notes and being our great intern. And uh, you, Ian, thank you so much for taking this journey. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been very good fun. And uh, I just want to mention that this episode was uh, brought to you by the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, an alternative universe since 1984 at CthulhuLives.org. That's all we got. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Ian Colbard. And this has been the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com.